When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. Just a reminder that Diet Starts Tomorrow is a podcast for entertainment purposes only. It is not a medical podcast and does not constitute medical advice. Always seek the advice of a physician or a health professional. listeners. Hi. We're popping in to tell you about this special episode. This was a back for seconds episode that our dear Sammy recorded with Emmeline Klein, who, fun fact, used to be an intern at Betches. And now she has a new book out that we're so excited to read. It comes out today. So we're releasing this episode that Sammy recorded with her um, all about the book which is called Dead Weight. It's about her experience with eating disorders and also eating disorders in the broader cultural understanding how we deal with eating disorders, how we think about eating disorders. There's lots of powerful information in this book that I think if you enjoy our show, you would really enjoy. Yeah, it was it was such a great episode. I was in the recording studio when she was doing it and I was like, Oh, it's a shame this is behind a paywall. Like, this is such a great conversation. So we're so excited for all of our listeners to get to hear this. So enjoy. Yeah. And uh, if you read the book, let us know what you thought. Hello, and welcome back to Diet Starts Tomorrow, Back for Seconds. I'm Sammy. I am so excited to introduce today's guests. And I think we're going to have a conversation that I've been really looking forward to having. Today, I'm joined by Emmeline Klein. She is actually one of the Betches' former interns from like 2013, I want to say. Welcome, Emmeline. Hi. It's so exciting to be back. And yes, I think it was 2013. I was like a sophomore in college. That is ringing a bell. And I just remember you being a really great writer, which is exactly why you're here today, because you have written a really incredible book that is coming out in what 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 month is it coming out? Because I know February, we're still the pre very, the very end of February, February 27th. Awesome. So you're tell us about your book because I feel like no one will be able to describe it better than you. But I will say I have given a little bit of a sneak peek when I read it on the back for sec to the back for seconds listeners. So they might remember that, they might not, but take it away from here because it was so good. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, well, I obviously learned everything I know about writing from writing news articles at Batches in 2013. Uh, oh. So I'd just like to press start it off with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but okay, so the book is a collection of essays about eating disorders, sort of a personal but also cultural, political, and economic history of eating disorders. So a mix of cultural criticism, economic history, 
political history, sort of engaging with scientific studies, but also engaging with things like America's Next Top Model, which is just as central to our society as any scientific study, in my opinion. I mean, you're not wrong. The original sort of idea was to give eating disorders the kind of same intellectual treatment that equally prevalent diseases like addiction and depression get. And those types of issues are often given sort of a book-length treatment that isn't just uh, from the self-help angle or the clinical angle, uh, well, which is usually what how eating disorders are treated. They're usually either a straight memoir or a self-help book or like a medical book. And these other diseases are treated sort of by society as things that can be understood as kind of a microcosm for a lot of social and political and economic forces in a way that eating disorders aren't usually understood as, I think, largely because mostly women have them. So they're like, men don't seem to be having as many of those diseases. They yeah. can't possibly mean anything about our culture, uh, <laughs> even though men actually do get them. Yeah. More common than one would want to admit, or they would even admit to themselves. For sure. So I was sort of like, let me... I have a I have a hunch that these this issue is actually going to be an almost better microcosm for a lot of those issues and started researching it, it turned out it was it's a lot of well, I'm sure we're going to get into it but you can trace a lot of different things about the epidemiology onto different economic eras the way that eating disorders are treated by our insurance regime is a, just such a f- horrifyingly fabulous microcosm for the failures of our insurance industry etc cetera, etc cetera. There's also, of course, a very feminist angle, but I, it was also important to me to not just give it the sort of like reductive, straightforward feminist treatment that it often gets, which is just like, girls are stupid. So they took in the message that they were supposed to be skinny. It's actually a lot more than that. Yeah, no, honestly, like everything that you just described, like is a perfect, perfect description of how of, of how the book gets so many so many valuable points across. And I'm really annoyed at myself because I gave the book to my mom and I know I had amazing notes in it, but I'm going to, I'm going to be able to remember them because there were so many salient points that just like, I don't know, you were able to tie together so many disparate seeming elements that we all talk about. Like you were saying, like, you know, looking at pictures of Nicole Richie in 2002 is just as central to this problem as the way that eating disorders are characterized and how it actually, the the medical system, the way it gets applied is it almost serves as like kerosene on the disorder because the disorder is highly like um, achievement based. So, I mean, that was, I think, such an interesting point and how like the system reinforces that. So could you talk, I, I think, a little bit about that? Because I thought that was such a like a resounding point. Totally. So yes, these diseases are really inherently competitive in the sense that we live in a society and often your opinion of your own body and your understanding of its size and what its size should be is obviously affected by all the people around you and the people you see on television, but also the way our diagnostic regime works ends up serving to increase that competition rather than allowing people that are sick to sort of like speak to each other and like recognize all they have in common. So like, for example, to come at it from a personal perspective, anorexia, which is sort of at the top of this diagnostic pyramid, not like to me morally, but in in the way that it's understood societally and in the way that I'm going to try to explain now, is a weight-reliant diagnosis. So you can only 
be diagnosed with anorexia if you have a certain low enough BMI, which is itself a horribly racist and misogynistic metric, which we can get into shortly if we want to. Um, but if you have all those sort of cognitive and emotional and psychological effects of anorexia, but you're not thin enough, you'll be diagnosed with what used to be called eating disorder, not otherwise specified in, until 2013. It was changed to other specified feeding and eating disorders just, I guess, to make it not roll off the tongue as well. I don't really understand what the <laughs> American Psychological Association is doing there. Taking money. Yes. Yes. Taking, taking money from a million pharmaceutical companies for sure. But when you're in the treatment centers, the people that have eating disorder not otherwise specified are often feel it like it's very easy to feel like you should be, you're not thin enough. Like you, right? You've just been told by the medical establishment that despite having a disease that you have because you don't feel that you're thin enough to have that disease and then you're in treatment with all these people that have anorexia. And so you're motivated to try to get that disease. And then you're also further motivated because your insurance will pay much more for you to be in treatment if you have anorexia than if you have eating disorder not otherwise specified. And so that's one way that happens. And it's even worse if you are trying to get treatment for binge eating disorder because eating disorders themselves are, first of all, the only illness in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the sort of psychology's encyclopedia of disorders. They're the only ones that have any biometric markers. So to be diagnosed with depression and to get your insurance to pay for your antidepressants, you just get diagnosed by a psychologist. But if you have an eating disorder, if you want your insurance to pay for your treatment for anorexia, you have to have a certain weight. If you want to have your provider treat you for bulimia, they literally test your blood and you have to have electrolyte levels that like show you've been throwing up a certain amount of times a day. Like it's really horrifying. So also once you're in the treatment, as soon as you hit your whatever the doctors said is your goal weight, you're kicked out because they say you're healthy when in fact that's actually the time that you need the most help because you're obviously almost killing yourself to avoid living in that body. And also at that point, you're being told you're not sick anymore when you still feel sick, which also reinforces this competition of I'm not thin enough. So that's one of that's a brief overview of how the medical industry creates this competition and this hierarchy. But we also see it so much in our culture where anorexia is understood as this sort of like good girl, selfless disease, and bulimia is like this sort of like slutty, greedy eating disorder. And so you see that in you see it in Gossip Girl when Blair is being called like even like adult reviewers of the Gossip Girl books when they came out, like Janet Malcolm wrote a review of Gossip Girl being like Blair is like the most endlessly scheming, acquisitive, greedy, and of course, bulimic girl in town or whatever. Yeah. I've talked many times on this show about how the pie scene, which you wrote about in the book, was so formative for me and trigger warning, it did leave me to try to throw up when I was like first in college. And like, I think about that now. I'm like, oh, the most destabilizing time of my life. Like, no wonder I was like manifesting these symptoms. And also inherent to it was the fact that it was like glamorous as it yes, was presented. Yes. It wasn't like dirty or painful or like self-hating or like in the same way. No, totally. And also like they glamorize it for, it's really interesting to see how they glamorize it further in the show versus in the books. Like in the book, not that it's like a perfect depiction, but at least in the book, it's like realistic how like inconvenient it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, she's constantly having to like leave a party to throw up or like be about to see her boyfriend and then like 
unlace her corset and throw up. And in the show, it happens once and she's immediately recovered, which first of all isn't realistic. And also it happens in this very like glamorized setting. I actually – I thought about this with the Spencer movie that came out a couple years ago. Actually, I did it so, in my opinion, horrifically. Like the scene, the one scene where you see her like binge and purge, she like eats like a tiny bit of a cake in like a beautifully stocked pantry and then she's throwing up in the most beautiful gown you've ever seen and like nothing gets on it and it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's also like very um, wealthy coded usually, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these portrayals. Like you – and that's – that also like completely ignores the fact that like there is so much there's so much disordered eating that comes from actual scarcity For and sure. from like lack of I mean it could be lack of like actual money but it could also be like lack of time like people who work shift jobs like they aren't able you know in food deserts like getting access to like healthy food that that could kind of help you mitigate your mental, your like your emotional or psychological issues with it, it's really like difficult, and that's really never ever portrayed in media. Totally, I, I talk about that in the book as well. Like, there's a memoir I read called "Not All Black Girls Know How to Eat" by Stephanie Covington Armstrong, and she talks a lot about that about growing up in a poor household where like the sort of cycles of when she had access to food and when she didn't, due to her family's financial situation, uh, fostered these sort of like binge and uh, restriction periods that were not under her control. And so, but she didn't really understand what her disease was because when she looked around at the media she was consuming, she wasn't seeing any depictions of what she was experiencing. And for so long, there was so little research into eating disorders in lower income communities, but the small, small amount of research that has now been done really, really shows that there's just like huge associations between having little income and suffering from binge eating disorder and bulimia specifically. And like part of that is even exacerbated by like the ways in which our governmental structures that are intended to help people in those types of situations actually exacerbate the issue. So like SNAP benefits, for example, uh, if you qualify for those, you get them once a month. So oftentimes people have been really hungry and so they spend it or a good portion of it at the beginning and then are able to have like full meals and like, and they're extremely hungry because any period of restriction makes your body crave overeating to prepare for the next period, like evolutionarily. So then you binge and also you're probably in a food desert. And also you probably just want to be able to buy the most food possible, right? So then that's going to be the cheapest food. And that food is being engineered in labs to be addictive. Like they've done MRI tests that show that like fast food and processed food light up this, consuming it lights up the same brain pathways as like opioids. So we're creating this situation where the cheapest foods are addictive and easily purchasable in bulk and also the easiest things to eat if you only have like a short break from work or something. And then those foods are going to make you binge. And so then either you're going to have a purge if you're suffering from bulimia, or you're going to have a restrictive period that's enforced on you by your economic situation, which leads you to your next binge period because you're going to be so hungry by the end of it. It's really, really upsetting. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. 
Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And they're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to newly, that's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. Something that I couldn't like a thought that I just kept returning to is that capitalism has worked its way into our weight as a, as a country, as a collective and like the obesity epidemic, so to speak is really like, in my view, like almost a capitalism caused epidemic rather than anything else. Like it is about like the profits of the, like the food companies. It's about like that inequality that, makes the whole situation worse, even in the ways that it tries to help it, while also like simultaneously at best blocking out and at worst demonizing some of the ways that people are able to get healthy. And because they're not like, you know, in the DSM or, you know, endorsed by the APA. And obviously, I'm not like advocating pseudoscience. But what I am trying to say is that like, the institutional understanding is extremely limited and therefore worsens the situation for the vast majority of people. Completely. And so I I totally agree. And I think one of the most interesting – another thing about that is like – so the obesity epidemic is definitely largely created by capitalism. And so is the eating disorder epidemic. And in fact, I think we we talk about these two issues like they're separate. But in fact, it's just like one epidemic, which is just yeah. like – a like national epidemic of body dysmorphia that's like a moral and a political issue too of like what we think beauty is. And so we have this like artificial conflation of a racist and misogynistic beauty standard with health to start with. And then the cascade effect demonizes people on both ends of the spectrum and often 
often people that are obese are suffering from undiagnosed eating disorders that are in fact exacerbating their obesity, both because the actual every single time that you, your body naturally has a set point and every single time you go below that through some type of crash diet or disordered eating, both which is usually any diet you are doing is just a form of disordered eating, uh, your set point often like moves up a little bit because your body is afraid uh, I mean, it'll go back down eventually, but it'll at first want to put on more weight in order to avoid that period of restriction that it thinks is coming because you've taught it that. And so as soon as somebody becomes a little bit overweight, uh, their doctor prescribes them a diet, even though actually being in the overweight band of BMI has no long-term consequences for mortality in large-scale studies. And the main reason that the overweight band is where it is and the obese band is where it is is because drug companies need obesity to be classified as a disease in order to sell their drugs. And like all of the nonprofits that raise awareness about obesity are largely funded by these drug makers. And and like obesity is a disease at certain grades, uh, mainly grades two and three, but at grade one and then in the overweight band, the big scale studies don't really show much correlation with mortality that can't be explained by the effect that actually repeated dieting has on your heart. Right. And also the question is like, is BMI the best metric to actually be determining obesity? Absolutely not. Or or should it be like characterized almost like depression, like an like a checklist of things that contribute? I mean, look, I'm not a doctor, so I really shouldn't even be recommending it. But everything that you just described about the repeated dieting and how your your body holds on, but like your set like your set point will sort of re- reset itself. And then I've, I feel like I'm living what you described, like through being in like probably like 15 ish years of like disordered eating and like now trying to like be in an active recovery. And I feel that go it like with each, and I'm not even really like timing it, but like the longer I go without dieting, without any type of restriction, it like leaves my brain more, but my body also sort of like settles into itself. But like not, I don't, I don't weigh myself. I don't even know what size, like I'm, you know, walking into my closet is like, oh, I'm guessing what I'm going to be wearing, like what size we're wearing today. But like, okay, like it's, it just feels more itself. I can't really explain it any other way than that. But um, something that I thought was really wonderful about your book was that you were able to touch on personal things, but without making it like about a journey of your your recovery. But you definitely had a lot of really vulnerable, honest, like the, the key pieces that I think, you know, someone could see themselves in. So could you, I guess, kind of like talk about how your own experience in recovery and treatment informed just your overall outlook? Yes, definitely. Um, And thank you for saying that. I definitely tried to – like obviously there was a lot about myself in there, but I really wanted this book to be kind of a choral narrative. And so I wanted my story to sit alongside and not – pardon the pun, but way more than the stories (laughs) of other women and people that I spoke to and even somebody – like I wanted one girl's Tumblr post to be as salient as like something that happened to me because I do think that one of the only ways to recover is to see 
how many other people are going through the same things and how much we have to learn from each other and how much we can care for each other. Which brings me to to answer your question because I really didn't have like a traditional recovery experience. I was first diagnosed when I was younger than a lot of people I ended up speaking to, but because I was like in seventh grade. And uh, the only time I went to like concerted treatment was an outpatient center at that time for like about two years when I would go at first like three every day. And then eventually I went less. But again, like I was never even at my really sickest when I was very ill, like I was never thin enough to be diagnosed with anorexia. And so I had eating disorder not otherwise specified. And I felt very insecure, like in the waiting room with the anorexics being like, oh, I should be them. Like, why am I even here? I don't deserve this treatment. And I was lucky enough that like my parents could pay for it, but I I would have been proven that belief would have been proven right by my insurance and I think would have worsened my disorder a lot if I hadn't been able to access it. And eating disorders have horrible, horrible recovery rates. Like only half of people who are around half of people who ever get diagnosed with anorexia or bulimia like will recover fully. Anorexia like has like a 20% rate of either being chronic or literally killing you, which is inevitably an undercount because it's so hard to know what killed somebody. And part of the reason those death rates are so high is because to get diagnosed with anorexia, you have to already be so sick to hit that horrifically cruel BMI uh, cutoff. And so one of the few things that is correlated with recovery is being diagnosed earlier and getting treatment earlier, which our medical system is and uh, insurance system are both designed to prevent, which is just really upsetting. So that's whole, one whole issue. But to go back to me, <laughs> I went in middle school and in a really messed up way, I think what was most motivating in there was like actually stuff that doctors said that was like making me afraid that I'd never have still like the body I wanted. Like it was like doctors threatening me being like, you know, if you don't get this under control, you're never going to go through puberty like a normal person and you're like not going to like be a beautiful girl, right? So it was still predicated on this kind of I version of my a self that was like better than the one that I was. And I think it worked in that in a perverse way and that it motiv- that motivated me to start eating and then really just eating plus being in like group therapy with other people that are going through it, those two things together were far more helpful to me than anything a doctor or psychiatrist really said to me. And so then I was able to recover for a time, but I definitely thought about it a lot still and I wouldn't describe myself as fully recovered. And then I had a bad relapse around the end of college and I ended up getting on Wellbutrin and we can talk about that. It's its own whole thing, but it's a drug that can really exacerbate eating disorders, also an antidepressant. I learned so much about Wellbutrin from I was, I'll tell you, I was on Wellbutrin for a time more so to counteract the effect of other things Mm -hmm. that I was on, which I realized was actually a problem caused by birth control. But we should talk about that for sure. So we can do that next uh, because it's related. But basically, I just had a big relapse that was then exacerbated by this drug. I ended up having like a very scary medical experience, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, And I just was like, okay, I need to get this under control or else like I might die. Like this is not a working for me. And then I just like, honestly, not to be so cringe, but I think like starting my MFA program when which I wanted to write this book was truly the thing that helped me recover the most, like researching and realizing like, one, like this isn't my fault. I'm just like a pawn to all these forces that I had no part in putting in place. And also sort of realizing 
like every time moment that I stay sick and every moment that I bring myself closer to a beauty ideal that was designed to harm all of us, I'm actually upholding the the ideal and I'm upholding all of these really racist, really classist, really misogynistic beauty ideals and making them stronger by playing into them and getting my body closer. Also, like, because, you know, I am white, whatever, like, I can bring my body closer than somebody else and I'm then entrenching that ideal. And so for me, which is not to sound like, oh, I'm such a great person, but I meant it more like it had to feel like morally wrong to me in order to actually motivate myself to not do it because just not doing it because like I like I didn't have enough will to live at the time to not want to do it for myself. You know, it's not cringe at all what you're saying because and it actually tracks completely and it sort of relates to something that's very popular right now, which is Ozempic, which we should also get yes. to. What you just said is like you need because I actually relate to this completely. Like what I think brought me to recovery was similar, like A, realizing it wasn't my like this wasn't my fault. Like this is what I was raised into. And B was like the morality of it, like that we were taught to believe that like this is moral and actually it's deeply immoral and harmful to people. And I felt the same way. And it really makes sense because on some level, morality has been so projected onto our bodies and to food and to behavior that it becomes a moral purity thing. And you see that with orthorexia. You see that with like all this stuff. So it makes sense that you and I needed like an alternative outlook in order to really like change. Right. And none of that is to say that like anyone with an eating disorder is like a moral failure. Just to really very clearly say that. I obviously know you're not saying that. It's taking the morality away. It's that there is no morality in this. Totally. It's just eating. But also it's about providing like a different moral paradigm than the one that we've been fed, which is one that is actually disgusting and is one that is mostly less of a moral system than an economic system, truly, because it exists to feed us junk food, to feed us diet systems, to keep Weight Watchers in business, to keep eating disorder treatment in business, which is one of the biggest growing sectors of healthcare, as I talk about. And the the diet industry. So yeah, the diet and like the diet industry and the eating disorder treatment industry, specifically these treatment centers that genuinely don't work and often reinforce the disorder in many ways for the reasons I was saying at the beginning about how you're kicked out and you're told you're not whatever thin enough to have a certain diagnosis and then you're taken out of treatment and told you're healthy when you're not and all of these treatment centers that have like really, really poor outcomes, like like for, like the relapse rates in the first year out of what is considered successful treatment are like almost as high as 40% for many of the places. And those treatment centers are expanding at like record rates in the past like five to 10 years. Let me guess, private equity. Yes, exactly. (laughs) A lot of the the private equity funds that are buying up these treatment centers and expanding them are also invested in, to bring it back to Ozempic, these telehealth companies that can prescribe you Ozempic and diet apps like Noom. And then you're creating these like this like horrific cycle, which I don't think is like a conspiracy, but I think is like the system functioning. I like... It's like as a designed, horrible, yeah, like a horribly replicating, yeah, lizard. It's that the incentives in like unbridled capitalism allow this, right? Well, like the incentive isn't there. Why would if a private equity firm is invested in both a diet app that often because I forget what the neatest statistic is right now, which is bad of me, but it's either twenty five or thirty five, either way, very high percent of diets 
become obsessive and become disordered eating symptoms. If your diet app is creating that, your diet app is actually, in fact, creating customer patients for the other thing you're invested in, the treatment center, right? And so then what is this, where is the incentive to make the treatment work, especially because if you're in the same way that there's a, there was one like a leaked Weight Watchers memo where the CEO was being like, yeah, our Weight Watchers doesn't work. Like you have to, people come back an average of like four to five times, but, and that, and he said, that's where your business comes from. So if Weight Watchers is functioning that way, eating disorder treatment centers, while they're framing it in much more like mournful terms and are saying like, it's so sad that these diseases are so pervasive, but it's not bad for them if it doesn't work because it's the one of the most expensive things you can get on a medical basis, like addiction and eating disorder treatment. The two treatments that work the least are the most expensive. People are spending like tens of thousands of dollars a month to be there. Like more parents, people are mortgaging their homes. It's really, really scary and it's really, really exploitative. Warmer weather is finally back. After so many cold months, it's nice to get outside and soak up the sun. But the springtime always brings those unwanted guests, pollen and seasonal allergies. April showers bring spring flowers and sniffly noses and stuffed up sinuses. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I just had them hit the other day. I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I popped a Claritin and it was like night and day. I'm a huge fan of Claritin. I use it on the regular and it always helps when we're making that transition from winter to spring, which is when my allergies flare up. Mainly it's my sinuses that get so clogged and the Claritin just clears it right up. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy throat and nose, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live your life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. What you just described is like their marketing funnel for whoever is invested in this. And, you know, again, that's like, there's so, I don't even know where you start with that, like in terms of regulation, in terms of what's allowed to be marketed. But I mean, something that I thought just speaking to the Ozempic of it all, I think that like one of the things that is potentially problematic, but also potentially very freeing about Ozempic is that like, if you can just get a shot to be the beauty standard, it takes a little bit of the like morality out of it because like you didn't work for it, which I think is a huge component of where people get, you know, that's where like the good girl Mm -hmm. stigma comes from. And I also think it's interesting that, you know, you said 
that this is like in some ways like an economic system because it also relies on the values of white supremacy, which are too ultimately an economic system in America. Like white supremacy existed, you know, I guess it pre-existed like American slavery, but like ultimately slavery was an economic system and it had to be premised on like this this like white beauty, white being better. And therefore, the closer you can be now to the white beauty standard, it has to continue to be better. And it's just those two things reinforce themselves so consistently. Then there's, again, like there's no con- incentive, you know, and to, like you said, like, I don't really see it as like a conspiracy either, but like it all just dovetails so perfectly that for certain people to be able to profit off of our pain and illness. I completely agree. And then I think to talk about Ozempic and also to just quickly say, like, I think I just want to clarify that I'm not casting any aspirations on the doctors and the eating disorder treatment centers. Like, I think they try oh, yeah. to help. I just think that there's like not a good – the paradigm the we have to treat eating it. disorders is not a good paradigm. Anyway, okay. But back to the question of Ozempic. I think what is – there are so many things about it that are so terrifying. I mean – First, I I agree with you that it's great to like excise this sort of like notion that like hard work can create a body that fits the beauty standard. And Ozempic does sort of remove some of that because now when you look at someone, you just don't know whether they like worked out every day or whether they took Ozempic and like, sure. And like in an ideal world, that would remove the sort of like moral valence we attach to – that beauty standard, but I just don't think I'm pessimistic that that will really have sort of that effect. And I also think that like, it's going to just on one level, make the beauty standard ever more inaccessible because wealthy people will just take Ozempic and be even ever so slightly thinner than they already were. Also, there's this, uh, I don't know if you've seen these, but a lot of well, if it, whenever you get off of Ozempic, actually, I think you guys did an episode about this, but when, when you get off of Ozempic, you pretty much immediately regain the weight. So mm-hmm. if so, if going back to that sort of thing we were talking about before about the obesity epidemic being artificially created, it's like because of the moving set that. point, because of the weight cycling, because after any period of restriction, you're extremely hungry and you're more hungry than you would have been had you never done that diet or that restriction. And Ozempic doesn't act on any of your actual metabolism. It just makes you eat less. So your actual body is going to be just as hungry once you stop taking Ozempic as it would when you stopped your last crash diet. And so those people, once they regain the weight, they're probably going to end up a little bit more than they were before, unless they're planning to stay on it for the rest of their lives. And we have no information about how it affects fat fat people for the rest of their lives uh, because the longest studies for showing it for weight loss are two years. And those longer ones that are done on animals, a lot of those animals have cancer. So I think it just reveals the depth of our fat phobia because we're willing to subject fat people to this like to a lifetime on this drug that we have no idea what the long-term effects of it are because we'd rather them just be thinner. And then on top of that, there's been all these like anecdotal articles saying, oh, like Ozempic can stop you from picking your nails and stop you from your like binge shopping and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know if you've seen those, but it, it's because it works I have. On- and that's what really like made me, that's what perked my ears up more than even the weight. Because like I'm very much like that type of person who's like very okay. So me too. Yeah. I I'm doing it right now. I'm I'm t- always twirling yeah. my hair, whatever. Yeah, so it's same. interesting because if yeah. it's supposed to be able to fix these little compulsions and to fix these like cravings that we have, because it's supposed to help with drinking and etc. First of all, 
there's no if I think just like the desire that we as a public and that the media have to find all the best things about Ozempic is like coming from an inherently like fat phobic place and a thin worshiping place because there's no if a drug that was doing anything else we wouldn't be so quick to jump on before the studies come out like like the vaccine for example yes, yes. but even like <laughs> like outlets are like like media outlets are like be, are like reporting on these anecdotal effects of how it of how it helps with those things before the studies come out in the way that they would normally wait for studies but because it's already making people thinner that's just my theory maybe now i sound like a conspiracy theorist no you're you're like nailing i'm like yeah like you're you're not even like it's not conspiracy you're just like observing totally you know? Thank you. it's just well, like yeah and then the other thing was like that i was gonna say is that also so i've been thinking about this a lot actually because i you know would love it if i could stop picking my nails and stop pulling my hair and like all Same. those things and also never have to think about what my body looks like again but there's this sort of really scary part of it to me because also a lot of people anecdotally have reported that ozempic makes them feel kind of like numbed out or like not able to access certain parts of their emotions and they the doctor researchers don't yet know what part of your brain it's working on or how but to me i feel like you know there's been this movement in general like with like techno capitalism of mm-hmm. you know we've got like you've got like soylent instead of your meals and you've got like uh you know uber delivering the things so you don't have to go to the store and there's this sort of like real hot intense emphasis on a frictionless existence and the transhumanist obsession at the highest drinks of the tech industry on like longevity of life but with this like sort of it seems to me yearning towards a like kind of completely frictionless like numbed out life where you're like you're drinking soylent you're not drinking alcohol you're doing all of maybe you don't have any of your bad habits but then i started being like well do we really want to go in the direction that these industries have been heading and like as much as i hate that i pick my nails and as much as i hate that sometimes i want to like go out and party too much aren't those also the things that like remind me that i'm human like having a craving and like then having to sit through it yeah, or satisfying it and or satisfying and, it yeah. sometimes you're like also like what is so wrong with twirling my hair yeah, like, like there's worse fine. things <laughs> there's you worse could things. be murdering someone. You totally. know, if your compulsion is to is to pick your hair, which I'll share that. Like, at least you're not Ted Bundy, right? But I feel like it's like this <laughs> this drive towards this like perfectibility that like is gonna make yeah. us all into these like automatons where we're so similar to each other and like losing all the like little tiny human foibles that make us human and make us ourselves. Especially when you think about it from like the way that plastic surgery has gone from like oh a surgery God. under the knife to like little adjustments with this, 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 you know, there could do everything like your, your neck, your skin, your nails, your knees. Like it's all just like, you're so right. Cause that's also capitalistic. It's also like maximize the efficiency, like growth and betterment at all costs. Even if it doesn't like matter, if you grow, like sometimes totally. like, you know, you gotta have seasons where you're working heads down and seasons where you're prospering. I'm actually writing like a really long piece right now for a magazine about facial injectable chains. So like you're peachy, you're plump, you're jacked because those are obviously also being invested in by (laughs) private equity in a huge way. Like they all like I like they have big plans to like expand their footprints. They've all like a bunch of them just got like huge investments going to be like sort of the dry barification of Botox and of facial filler. And it's like Again, you start to see people, it's changing, especially for young people, the like notion of beauty and it's making like faces 
of like young women all look much more similar because the injectors who only get like three to six months of training and they don't have to be medical professionals that work at these chains want, they just look at the faces of like the heart-shaped face from the facial balancing diagram and then they're going to like give everyone the same face and it's like really creepy. It also doesn't, that's like not how you should do facial proportions because everyone starts with Mm -hmm. a different face and like that's what makes an actually good injector or plastic surgeon if you want to go to one. But there was one more thing I wanted to just touch on because you had mentioned eating disorders and addiction have the worst treatment success rates. And I have always sort of felt personally, and then you kind of validated this in your book through actual sources, that there is sort of like a tie between those two things. Like it is an addictive it is a form of addiction or it plays on those same receptors. And I think that like the, the way that people don't look at those things as hand in hand and one in one area in particular where you spoke about pro anaboards and how they're, they play a role in, in these communities in kind of a similar way as like a community that's like inactive addict or even like trying to recover from addiction. Yes. Yes. Um, So could you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was such a unique, never broached in public uh, perspective. Uh, Definitely. So I'm actually, I'm very passionate about this because I just, I don't know if you were ever on those pro boards when you were a teenager, but I definitely was. was. I was not on the pro boards, but yeah, no, but I've seen them. And totally. Yeah. Well, so I think that they're just like, it was, it's just, it was and is just such a misunderstood space. So uh, first of all, people think of them as just sort of a space for like thin inspiration, like images of really thin people to inspire you to diet and also like diet tactics and people pressuring each other to diet. When in reality, of course, there is that stuff. There is diet tips and there are photos of extremely thin people, but there's also an entire sort of like harm reduction side to that space where it's people who are befriending each other and checking in on each other, making sure people are getting through the day emotionally. And there's people who are providing like genuine harm reduction tips. So harm reduction, like you can think of it the way that it's you, it was used. I mean, as I previously, we previously talked about, given the failure rates of these treatments, people have to come up with their own ways to like help people in their community that are suffering with these Diseases, similarly to during the AIDS epidemic, when the government was completely ignoring it, harm reduction approaches included like safe needle exchange for drug users so that you can do that. And like now with fentanyl, people are advocating for safe injection sites in addition to needle exchanges and things like that. And so people have like on like I found on Tumblr, like there's guides for like purging without like messing up your esophagus in such a way that you're going to like bleed and be in a lot of pain. And all of those things start at the top of those types of guides. They're saying like, I hope you're recovering. I don't want you to do this. This is not a suggestion. This is just like, because I know, and I've been there and I want to make sure that you're safer than I was. And a lot of times people help each other and meet each other on those boards. I spoke to many people that met each other on these boards and then helped each other through recovery. There's a girl whose life was saved. These anorexia has one of the highest suicide rates in bulimia of any mental illness. And uh, somebody reached out to a friend they'd made on a pro Anna board who was able to alert the authorities before the girl died and save her life. She never would have met her if she didn't have that space. And even if we go back to the side of it that is the inspiration and diet tips, what I think is sort of this just deeply insidious misogyny is the things that are being considered the inspiration. It's like a photo of 
a celebrity that was in Vogue or was in Us Weekly or something. And often a diet tip that was also in those magazines. And yet somehow a teenage girl by the magic in her fingers, when she reposts an an image to her audience that is far smaller than the publication that originally published it, she's suddenly going to be the target of these like literal New York Times articles that are like deadly, creepy teenage girls who like are so evil and are indoctrinating the youth into like trying to be thin. And it's like that photo is from Vogue. It's just like so disturbing. And instead of asking ourselves, where did underage girls learn this, we're blaming them as though they invented it. And then just one more thing I would like to say, because I to bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is images of Nicole Richie. I think her like role in the aughts era, uh, pro-anna internet was like just so deeply fascinating because first of all, she starts out, she's on The Simple Life with Paris Hilton and all of the tabloids are being like fat pig, who's a completely beautiful, normal mm. girl. Yeah. Uh, like calling her fat. She starts losing weight rapidly, as you might try to if you were a young woman subjected to that. And then she starts getting tons of attention. Vanity Fair puts her on the cover with a, the headline literally being Nicole weighs in. And the lead of the article is about like, does she have anorexia? Doesn't she? And is like, it's so, so gross. And then she throws a party that was immortalized, which was a Memorial Day barbecue in 2007. And after she's been subjected to all this, first the fat shaming, then an article's calling her anorexic on the cover of every magazine. Uh, she invites her friends and is like, by the way, there will be a scale at the door. Oh, no girls under 100 pounds will be let in. And then she's immediately destroyed by the media as though she's promulgating this horrible beauty standard, which is actually the exact same thing that then the media subjected the teenagers that go on those boards to, right? Like neither Nicole Richie nor those teenagers invented this beauty standard. They've been subjected to it. They've been cruelly insulted. They've been sickened. And so then when they want to make a joke about it, as Nicole Richie did, or when they want to talk to their friends about it or find someone else who's gone through it, like the girls that are going on pro-eating disorder Tumblr, then suddenly we're cast as like these virus incubators or these like worse than that, like somebody that's like actually trying to get someone else sick when we're just trying to talk about it with somebody who understands. Same as it ever was. Totally. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches, and honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash betches. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something that really stuck out for me in the book was that like, A, that entire perspective, but also that like these boards don't just let like anyone come in. Yes, like yes. you Like a, there is a harm reduction at the door where it's like they're not trying to like recruit. Yes. And so like the ones that are locked, you have to like ask and talk to someone and find it. But also like there's this researcher, Zoe Alderton, who wrote a great book called The Aesthetics of Self-Harm. And she was looking at both pro-eating disorder boards and also like sort of like suicidal ideation boards and cutting images from Tumblr mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And she found with eating disorder boards specifically that there's just like an incredibly low, low, low rate, almost none of people who haven't already been suffering from eating disorders for multiple years that are going on these boards. So this like whole cascade effect that's imagined in the media of like, older anorexic women like indoctrinating the youth is actually not happening. It's people who've been suffering in silence and alone for years and finally find someone to talk to about it. And so that also makes it even worse when these a lot of these pro-eating disorder places are censored by the social media companies. And the hashtags are censored and then people lose their spaces where they were talking to their friends. And there's no proof that when you... So what they do is like Tumblr... TikTok, Instagram, all these spaces will censor so that if you search a pro-anorexia hashtag, it'll instead pop up with a public service announcement that says like, would you like to get help? Like here's National Eating Disorder Association website, which first of all, if I'm like a person that had eating disorder not otherwise specified and could never get the anorexia diagnosis because I'm not thin enough and then I'm kicked off of my board because it's deleted and then I see that pop up, I clue on that pop up, I go over to the National Eating Disorder Association website, which it defines anorexia as a weight that I don't have and now I'm excluded. So I'm like, like how do I thing. get in that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then I'm that's exasperated. But yeah. also, the thing that's like some really scary now is that like TikTok and Instagram, the way the algorithms work for the Explore page and for your For You page, the companies have censored the actual hashtags for like the pro eating disorder stuff, so that like those spaces don't exist. But they're lifting up the things that are the beauty presenting diet, the beauty ideal and also literal diets. Like WSJ did a great investigation about this. Like if you just search like fashion, like if you're looking up clothes, it'll start feeding you diet content. And so the the eating disorder like stuff that can actually sometimes be helpful for you to, to find people, that's being censored and the diet stuff and the beauty standard stuff is being promoted. Right. I mean, I think it's especially messy because of the algorithmic nature of it. Whereas like probably like the boards of 2010, they were so much more communal based. And I mean, I feel like maybe on Reddit is like, I guess where you kind of have something like that. Or if there were like a new eye towards recovery, you could have therapists who run a certain type of treatment who run those communities where like they're monitoring it. And there's like, 
a sense of who these people are and like someone's actually like a professional is supervising it. But totally. unfortunately, like I don't even know where you get that if you can pay fully out of pocket. Like, yeah, no, as it's a really community. sad. There's so few options. Especially because I do think there is a benefit, I imagine, in meeting people in recovery who are not all just like you. Yes. Well, there's a there's a collective called Fed Up Collective that is on Instagram and they have a website and they run Zooms that you can just join. And they also have like a really great Instagram platform and it was designed to be gender inclusive and body inclusive and racially inclusive. It's a really amazing, amazing space. So if anyone is listening and looking for a community that will be really accepting, that's a great one. And I really recommend it. Um, I also think that though we shouldn't like while you're totally right about the algorithms, like the the fact that like, like I feel like the algorithm can also end up being used when we talk about it to like kind of let the companies off the hook because it's like the algorithm is just like giving you what you oh, want. Oh, no, right? they decide the algorithm. That's the thing. Like also, the algorithm is – that's to me synonymous with meta. Totally, totally. Is But also like the – even like if we're saying like, okay, they censored the pro eating disorder hashtags on like TikTok – what, how, I think that if you're going to censor that, you should censor like hashtag like last night eating, diet. which is like the last big feast you have before you go on a big diet or like diet starts you, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like they could censor it. They could be shadow banning what I eat in a day videos. Like they could be doing a lot of things that are more effective than just censoring like explicit pro anorexia hashtags if they actually cared. I mean, I totally agree with you. I think it gets at like the problem with that also like I think people who suffer from these issues whatever you however you categorize it also face which is that like you can't just go sober from food totally it's imbued in the nature of how we all talk about it good mm-hmm. food healthy food blah but like lazy active right, like, like all these food, junk words food. like everything is just so so deeply moralized Exactly. And like, you can't take that away. And it makes you feel like every day you're making like 40 million moral decisions when you really aren't at all. Right. Which again, I think, you know, can go back to like the taking the morality out of it, I think is like really just such an important step. I think learning about like orthorexia was really helpful for me. And well, there's many parts that were really helpful in taking the morality out of it. I think that like recognizing the hierarchy is one of the like first steps, even though it sounds bad to say that, like, but recognizing like the, the hierarchy we've been taught about eating disorders is really helpful in taking the morality out. Cause when you look at it and you realize the way that like anorexia is associated with all these things, like Christian saints that were fasting, suffragettes on hunger strikes, like all these things that we've been like taught that like a good woman, even like a politically good woman would be thin and would be able to do that and whatever. Well, bulimia is like the greedy, bratty, spoiled one and binge eating disorder is for if you're like, can't control yourself at all. And all of those things are just completely untrue, which you can quickly learn by just the fact of how much crossover there is. Like almost 40% of people who ever are diagnosed with anorexia will go on to have binge eating disorder symptoms because of what, again, I've been talking about, which is this like way your body like learns to crave after any period of restriction overeating. And so once you realize that all those people were talking about like Catherine of Siena, Christian, famous Christian fasting saint, her like hallucinations that she was like, that were, were often of like feasts and she would be describing these like feasts because like her body was hungry. She'd be hallucinating food. There would be nuns that would be on fast and then they'd break into the convent and steal all the food under like 
they would say like the devil took me, but like, you're just being, you're hungry. You're right. You're just going to your refrigerator and eating shredded cheese. Right. Like, but so once you see yeah. all the crossover, both historically and now in, a, in the history and the actual epidemiology and the scientific studies, because I obviously don't know exactly what was going on with the Christian saints, yeah. it's easier to take the moralism out of it once you realize that most of us have all of these issues. And I actually think that like the, I, I sort of think that there's, we should basically just call everyone eating disorder, not otherwise specified, because then we could all talk about our issues and the way we're actually thinking about food, which is actually much more important than the way in which we're consuming at that given moment. Because if I'm in an anorexic period right now, I might even be in a bulimic period tomorrow. Like, who knows? I was hoping to get to ask you, like, if you even think that the distinctions matter or like, is it, I think they you know, do. I think it's obviously helpful in some ways, but I think that to, to be able to like understand, and I'm sure it's helpful for doctors, but I think it does more harm than good, both in creating this hierarchy and also the diagnoses just like keep proliferating, right? And you change what you're doing. Yeah. Like I switched stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. sometimes, like you said, like yeah, periods yeah. of restriction. And also like, even if you're like not dieting, if you're in a binge period, that's also an eating disorder. Like totally, when you're totally. thinking about food all day because you're like, have been starving yourself for three years. That's a need. Like that's completely. I mean, I don't. I think there should be no weight requirements associated with any of that. Yeah, I agree. First of all, and then I think that yeah, I just think it's like not only does it breed, uh, it creates this hierarchical notion when really most of us suffer from symptoms of all like a mixed bag, but also like the medical industry gets I feel like distracted by creating all these new diagnoses. Uh, which is usually a function of insurance. Like I think it's well-intentioned because in order to get insurance coverage, you need a diagnostic code, right? So like that's why they came up with atypical anorexia because the doctors wanted people who didn't have the weight requirement, who weren't thin enough to get an anorexia diagnosis to still be able to get treatment, which is a good intention. But in doing so, they ended up creating just anorexia, but you're fat, which just obviously makes you feel more like you should be anorexic. Like it's so cool. And so it's just like really dark that way. And like, even like orthorexia, like it was that disease in part, like it, it's useful that we have a term for it, but it's really just anorexia with basically like an obsession with healthy eating often. And you end up just cutting out food group after food group. And it is basically anorexia. And it's not really that important to have that distinction. Except for that, it can be helpful, again, to learn to take the moralism out when you look into, like, the history of what we've thought of as healthy eating. Like, there's this insane woman, Ellen Gould White, who is the leader of Christian subsect in, like, the Victorian era. She was sort of like, Adam and Eve were so amazing, and they were able to eat all these only whole foods. And so now we have all our modern problems because we're eating, like, whatever they were eating in the Victorian era, like bread. I don't know. (laughs) And she like basically came up with this insane diet plan uh, that a lot of her followers started following, which led one of her followers was John Harvey Kellogg, who was the inventor of Kellogg cereals, but also invented this place called the Battle Hill Sanatorium. That was basically the first like wellness detox spa where you would go there for weeks at a time if you were rich and like go on an insane diet and get colonics and stuff. And anyways, the point is all that came out of this like one Christian story, right? So all of our understandings of what a healthy food is, is inevitably inflected by this like Judeo-Christian sense of morality that it just really is not, I think, helping most people. It also just like totally doesn't account for other cultures and the yeah. ingredients yes, they yes, use yes, that yes. are indigenous to their regions and like make sense with where they're from and their bodies and how they've adapted. We could talk about this forever. I mean, this is what made your book so, so, so fascinating to me is that just like the way you brought everything together, like all these just different 
elements, like you said, like between mythology and history and pop culture, the science, the political and economics, the way that those things affect it. And like everything you're talking about is like, I don't even know where to start. Like you need like eating disorder, systemic reform, because it just, you know, it's such an American problem. I mean, I feel like you already have a sequel. In. Thank you. There is one more thing that I do want us to go back to, which is Wellbutrin, because that was like a very eye-opening piece of the book too. I think that's a great thing for us to end on because it brings together a lot of these threads we've been talking about. And it's such an American problem to the point you just made in that it is not approved as an antidepressant in any other country. Like you cannot get it in the UK as an antidepressant. Fascinating. Really? So Wellbutrin, you might have seen on Twitter if you're out there listening or TikTok where it's often referred to as like this Zoom Zoom antidepressant or like the skinny, horny antidepressant. That's where I first heard about it. And I think this intersects really interestingly also with like just sort of this kind of like fleabagification, dissociation feminism, like nihilistic e-girl thing going on right now, which Mm -hmm. I think is often a cover for disordered eating, white feminism, et cetera. But we don't have time for that, sadly. We could do that a different – we could do a different episode. (laughs) For sure. But so basically the reason people are saying that type of stuff on the internet about this drug is that it was actually invented um, in part because after – when SSRIs came out, they were very effective for a lot of people, but they also made a lot of women gain weight and lose their libido. And so drug makers were trying to come up with a drug that could do what an antidepressant could do without making you gain weight and without hurting your libido. And so – they're doing all these tests, whatever, they discover Wellbutrin, they find that it actually has a stimulant effect. So it acts a bit like an appetite suppressant and it doesn't have the same effect of libido as other SSRIs. And even when they were first doing studies in like the late 70s, they were like, well, maybe because bulimia has just happened to get really popular in the 70s, which is its own thing, tracking onto Reaganomics and the greed decade, et cetera. <laughs> it's really fascinating stuff. But bulimia is really popular. Maybe this will help because it's an appetite suppressant. It'll make people who have bulimia binge less, and then maybe that'll be solved. They do the studies, and they find that it does make them binge less. Uh, However, what they hadn't thought about is that the drug affects the electrolytes in your whole body, altering them. Electrolyte levels are also affected by throwing up and also even by periods of restriction. So the two together, uh, the double effect on the electrolytes basically led to a lot of the bulimics in these studies that were fully, we've known about since 1979, have seizures. It was like like a significant number of bulimics are having seizures on this drug. They still release it. People start having seizures. They take it off the market briefly in like yeah. the 80s and then, or the 90s. And then they re-release it in a with a, a warning that says, don't take it if you have an eating disorder. But at the same time in the 2010s, there when it, it now has this warning that says, don't take if you have an eating disorder, but they want to sell it. The drug companies want to sell it. So they're literally advertising it as the happy, horny, skinny pill. Like you, there were all the articles in all types of magazines. There was a Dr. Drew episode about it. And then that cascade effects down to the internet where girls on the internet are like, okay, wait, maybe I'll like have an, maybe this will help me get better at my eating disorder. Like if I have it, like, to, like that sounds great. I'll be happy and I'll be skinny. Exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. Like what's the real chicken or the egg there? And so yeah. a lot of people start getting access to it by either some people lie to their doctors and say they don't have an eating disorder, but a lot of people and I I did like I spoke to a lot of like actual subjects that I interviewed about this like just their doctors didn't ask them because they were like I don't look skinny enough so they didn't ask me if I had an eating disorder and they prescribed it to me and I didn't 
say it because why would I? That's sort of implying that I should be skinnier if they're going to prescribe me this thing that's contraindicated. Anyway, I was yeah. um, and I was one of those people where I just didn't say anything to my doctor, and so I was and because I sort of knew about it, I didn't like I like I knew that it could make you lose weight, and she. Actually, it was kind of worse because she knew I was had had an eating disorder in the past, but I, she thought I was recovered or whatever. And so I ended up taking it, made my eating disorder a lot worse, and I had a seizure. And I, after that, you quit cold turkey and was like, okay, I have to address both the eating disorder and not take that drug. Did you ask her for Wellbutrin or were you like, I need an SSRI? I told her I need an SSRI and I was terrified of gaining weight. And then she okay. prescribed it, which I'm like, that should be a red flag. Right. Yeah, that is the... But like fully the, the drug company was sued and lost to the US government in 2014 and had to pay billions of dollars. Like there's internal memos that say that 380 million people interacted with some form of advertisement calling this the happy, horny, skinny pill when they already knew that it was causing seizures in people with eating disorders. So it just shows you like so many parts of this issue because like the pharmaceutical companies genuinely just don't care. They just want the largest number of people to be on the drug. And doctors are not being taught about eating disorders in medical school. So these psychiatrists that aren't asking about it aren't also malintentioned. They just don't think about it because it's not taught as like, even though it should be, because it's one of the most prevalent epidemiological diseases in the United States. And then it's all intersecting with like, are very contemporary nihilistic forms of feminism where girls on the internet that would otherwise describe themselves as very progressive are being like, okay, but I also do take my skinny pill like right when I get home from the protest, like yeah, or yeah. whatever, you know what I mean? And so it's just like- And that's like also an aesthetic, there. it's an aesthetic yes. thing. And so much of this is about aesthetics and sure. about like- this aspiration and back to where we started, which is like this competition and how they're again, like it all feeds into like the capitalism and how it is eating disorders and our body dysmorphia and our body weight, what all the things that are around that. It's our absolutely national case of body dysmorphia where we just have no idea what a body is meant to look like. And that's because we want there to be a way for a body to look and there's no one way for a body to look. Right. Like it's wild to think that they should all look one way when you think about it. Right. It's an insane conceit for sure. Like look at animals. Like they all look very yeah. different. Not to compare no, us to so animals, true. but you know, Darwin has. So yeah. Yeah, no, we are animals. I am so excited for, for your book to be out, for people to read it. Thank Will you, so you much. tell people the pub date, where they can find yes, it? I mean, all yes. the obvious places. And yeah, I mean, we'd love to, you know, talk more about this and congrats because this is just, it was such an incredible book and I could not recommend it more. Thank you so much. Really, I'm so happy to, this is a, first of all, beautiful reunion. I'm obsessed. Yeah, me too. Thank you again. The book is out February 27th, but you can pre-order it now wherever you get your books. It's called Dead Weight. I'm Emmeline Klein with a C, not a K. The link is in my Instagram. It's on the Penguin website. It's various places. You're an incredible writer. I mean, some of like your turns of phrase were just really I could really appreciate it like the thoughts were amazing but like also just like the way you express them is really really artful and fascinating and like I just I love the way you're thinking about these things thank you so so much thank you so much for being here and with that we're always with you through thick and thin Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Rebecca Steinberg and Lauren Hope Crass editing by Rebecca Steinberg Social media by Lauren Hope Crass. Guest booking by Allie Friedlander. Be sure to follow Diet Starts Tomorrow on all socials. 
and send us your emails to dst at betches.com or your voicemails to 212-287-5650. Betches.